I found out just under 10 years ago. I was 16 years old at the time, and it was a um, pretty, pretty terrible time of my life. I was diagnosed in 2011, so I was 46 years old, but prior to that I'd been sick for seven years. I remember being at school and getting a phone call from the office and they were like, uh, you uh, need to go to the office right now, like the school office. Right. Your mum's here. She's taking you straight to the doctor. And I was like, what? I gained a massive amount of weight within four years, so I gained 20 kilos. And I was always very small previously, size 8 to 10. Then I ballooned up to a size 18. No one wanted to say anything because it wasn't 100% confirmed. And then I went and got a blood test and they were like, yep, you definitely have it. It was both surprise and relief. Uh, part of it was I felt like saying, well, I told you I was sick. <laughs> but a lot of it was also fear because all the horrific things that people hear, I was scared as well because I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know what to do, how I would be able to manage it. It hurts, like if you stabbed yourself, it would hurt you. So I stab myself every day. Yeah, it hurts. I often bruise. That's annoying in summer, but in winter it's okay. Sometimes I get blood on my clothes because I get lazy and uh, inject through my clothing if I don't want to, like, strip off in public. I actually um, found a breast lump not long after I was diagnosed and while I was waiting for the results, I made a pact that, you know, I didn't want to die and I thought... If everything becomes okay with the test, then I'll do something I've always wanted to do, which is dance, because I never ever was really sporty. I hated sport, and I just thought dancing is something I've always, always loved watching, and I thought I could never do. So as soon as the results came back clear, I started a dance class, and I just never looked back. Hi, my name is Bridget Foley and I have type 1 diabetes. Hi, my name is Yvonne Appleby and I have type 2 diabetes. The stories of Bridget and Yvonne are just two of the near 1.7 million people in Australia living with diabetes. Every day, 280 Australians will become diagnosed. That's one person every five minutes. It's the fastest growing disease in Australia faster than heart disease, even faster than cancer, and can very often lead to more serious health complications. And although diabetes affects so many of us, a huge number of Australians still know very little about it, even those who have been diagnosed, with some never finding out they have the disease at all. Today begins National Diabetes Week, so we'll be taking a deeper look at the disease that affects so many of us, some of the fascinating research that could revolutionise treatment, and what help is out there for those living with diabetes, and where this help is falling short. You're listening to Think Health. I'm Jake Morecambe. Before we get into all that, let's play catch-up. What is diabetes? 
Diabetes mellitus is a chronic metabolic condition that affects the levels of sugar glucose in your blood. And we typically think of it in three forms. Type 1, type 2, and gestational diabetes. And you'll hear about gestational diabetes later on in the show, but for now we're going to focus on types 1 and 2. For those living with type 1... Their body, for some reason, has turned against itself on the insulin-making cells. This is Catherine Wilson. Catherine is a credentialed diabetes educator, and she works with newly diagnosed patients to let them know what's going on with their body. So therefore it's not related to diet or physical activity at all. Type 1 diabetes is when the body fails to produce enough insulin. Insulin is hugely important because it's the hormone that lowers the level of glucose, a type of sugar, in your blood. It's released from your pancreas when the level of sugar in your blood rises, which happens when you're eating, for example. The insulin will help move that glucose around, where it either gets burnt up and used as energy so you can get on with your day, or stored as fat for later use. However, when you have type 1 diabetes, this process stops. Instead, the autoimmune process, meaning the way your body reacts to protect your internal tissue from damage, instead it destroys the insulin cells made by the pancreas, leaving you without the ability to produce insulin. And what this means is without the insulin you need, there's no way for your body to normalise the level of sugar in your blood. And in this case, type 1 diabetes will typically present itself in symptoms. Drinking a lot, weighing a lot, feeling really, really tired. But your type 1, you'll find that they lose weight as well. But for Bridget, who lives with type 1 diabetes, none of this happened. I actually had none of those symptoms. And it was a chance visit to the doctor that she actually found out she had type 1. What if that doctor never said that? Like, obviously, maybe yeah. another one would have said it down the road, but what if, like, you'd never known? I've met people since I've been diagnosed who've had that period where you don't know if you're... Like, you don't know that you've got a medical condition, but you're just living your life. But had she not found that out, she could have felt the full brunt of the effects of diabetes. Damage to the eyes, damage to the kidneys, the heart, and even a chance of entering a coma... Or dying. Yeah, they often go into a coma, so sugar levels go so high from the foods that they're eating, but their body's not doesn't have the inch, like literally doesn't have the ability to process. Yeah, um, the sugar. And how does it make you feel that if you had not been diagnosed at that point, does that kind of freak you out? You're talking about how people can potentially go into coma. Yeah, like yeah. that could have been you. <laughs> it freaks the heck out of me. But Bridget considers herself lucky and was able to detect it early, and even talks of one of her stranger symptoms in a light-hearted way. When people have high sugar levels, other people often think that they're just drunk. I get really obnoxious and, like, <laughs> rude to people, because it's like, God, why are you doing that? Like, God, like, you can't, your body doesn't know, like, you don't know what's going on until you test your sugar levels and you're like, oh, Sorry. <laughs> The tricky thing about type 1 is that you never see it coming. It's not preventable, it's incurable, but there are ways to manage it. 
you can use an insulin pump, which is a device that's connected into your stomach that's constantly feeding you the right amount of insulin you need. There are test strips where you prick your finger and you test your blood sugar levels by putting that strip into a machine. Well, there's what Bridget uses, which is an insulin pen. So I have a little pen. Okay. This bit in here is the insulin, and I can replace that whenever it runs out. So I just wind it up. Yeah. And then um, the dosage. There's a little um, list of numbers. Yeah. Uh, which you can wind it up or down to. And, and does then, it have, it has kind of a needle in the part where the insulin is or at the base or you attach that in? Yeah. So this pen I have to buy. Mm. Um, it's not free. The needles, however, I screw on the top and they're provided free um, by the government so that people don't reuse their needles. I see. <laughs> yes. So yeah, this is a little like screw on thing that you put on here. This I can do quite comfortably in public. Yeah. Um, I'll be out at dinner with my friends and just be like, excuse me. <laughs> so Bridget will inject herself with the pen into her stomach, typically when it's time to eat. At breakfast, lunch, dinner time, and sometimes when she's snacking as well. That's to make sure her insulin levels will be balanced with the amount of sugar that's coming into her body. Okay, so that's a quick wrap on type 1. Now type 2 diabetes is the complete opposite. Type 2 diabetes develop as a result of your body not being able to respond adequately or insufficiently to insulin. That's Christine McGrath. She's from the School of Life Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney. And that's what we describe as insulin resistance. And insulin resistance is the main key factor that can lead you to developing type 2 diabetes. So instead of not producing enough insulin... Those with type 2 diabetes are producing too much, and exactly how much will vary from person to person. But typically, the pancreas will release more insulin to compensate for this resistance. So the reason why insulin is high is because your organs are not able to respond to the normal amount of insulin that's produced by your pancreas to respond to the insulin to take down that glucose level. Pushing your pancreas into overtime. So your pancreas is going, oh, I need to produce a lot more insulin. And eventually that pancreas, the cells in the pancreas that makes the insulin is going to go, I can't do this anymore. Which means the insulin can't do its job, causing the glucose levels in your blood to rise. For those with type 2 diabetes, symptoms are typically the same as type 1. More frequent urination, upset stomach. But instead of losing weight, those with type 2 gain weight. Yvonne from earlier. I've gained a massive amount of weight within four years, so I gained 20 kilos. In more recent years, researchers have found that type 2 diabetes accounts for around 85% of diabetes cases in Australia. And this is generally due to genetics or lifestyle. Unhealthy eating and minimal exercise is putting more unhealthy sugars into our body and storing them as fat and putting more pressure on the pancreas, resulting in type 2 diabetes. To combat her diabetes, Yvonne took up dancing, which helped her shed over 15 kilos. And she also started taking an oral treatment known as metformin, which she takes daily that helps control her blood sugar levels, but also helps her keep the weight off. But even though Yvonne made some pretty big changes in her life, there are still some things that concern her. And one of those is the cost of treatments not just for herself, but for people in pre-diagnosis stages. 
a friend of mine has pre-diabetes and she actually takes more meds than I do and she tests her blood sugar levels more often than I do but she's not able to get any subsidies for the test strips or for any medication and it's just costing her an absolute fortune and I think you know if we're talking about um, early diagnosis I think it's very important that we include those people with pre-diabetes as well. Does that mean that the strips that you use, those are subsidised? They are, yes. Um, and why, why are you subsidised or by whom? So because I was diagnosed with uh, diabetes, I was able to become a member of Diabetes New South Wales. So the doctor had to fill out a form and then you pay for your membership and then, you're, then you get an NDSS card as well, which is government subsidised. Uh, and also when you go to the chemist, you just hand over the NDSS card and you get the strips subsidised. And so for pre-diabetes diagnosis, that's not possible? You can't get that subsidy? No, no. And as I said, she tests a lot more often than I do and she takes more meds. So it's costing her quite a lot um, every week, every month to be able to pay for this. Um, I'm also on a low-income card, so my strips are costing me, I think, $3.10 for 200 strips, whereas I think if you buy them over the counter there, they can be $50 or more per packet. So it's quite a a substantial difference. Wow. And why is your friend taking more meds than you are in the pre-diagnosis stage? Because I think because she's diagnosed early, they're trying to, by catching it early, they're trying to stop it from um, turning into type 2 diabetes. So she's on more meds to control it. Pre-diagnosis of diabetes or early detection is the theme of national diabetes this year, and for good reason. For Bridget, her diabetes was accidentally discovered. It was at a GP checkup that she happened to find out that she had type 1, having not had any symptoms. And for Yvonne, she was sick for seven years before being properly diagnosed. Both of them were lucky to find out when they did, although seven years is a really long time to not know, and Yvonne agrees. But according to diabetes educator Catherine Wilson, early detection can be hard when there are so few diabetes educators out there and so many more people being diagnosed. You look at your public hospitals that do have diabetes services, the waiting lists are, are terrible. How long, typically? Um, It could be three months, it could even be four months or even longer. It just depends. Just for even one consultation? Yeah. It's ideally that we could see the patient as soon as they're diagnosed because if they're wanting to know about the disease, at least they're going to have that knowledge straight away and hopefully be interested in preventing any complications or any damage to the body. But again, if there are waiting lists because there are so many patients, we might not be able to see them for another three months or so, because I've even seen patients that have lost their feet, their legs. Losing, what do you mean? Sorry, as in having to have them amputated. Wow. Yeah, but still haven't got that connection. Why Why did it get to the point of having to have their feet amputated? Anyone with diabetes, regardless of what type it is, we ask that they check their feet every day. If they've lost sensation in their feet, their toes, they might have trodden on something, not realise that they've trod on it. It's opened the skin, therefore infection has developed. And that's as an onset of 
something like diabetes. Yeah, that's because of high sugar levels. So, um, because it kind of puts like a, a stop on like bodily processes almost to kind of send the right nutrients or, or things the way of the foot in that instance. Is that yeah, kind of thing? that's right. High sugar and again damaging the blood vessels, so therefore not getting the correct nu- or enough nutrients down there, blood supply down there as well to do its job. Drop-in services for patients or those in pre-stages in places like pharmacies or hospitals where people can come in and ask any questions they might have about diabetes is one way Catherine thinks the message can get out there quicker and more effectively. But across the board, a focus on early intervention is the crucial next step in dealing with diabetes. You want to do something actively. You might want to try and do something to to stop you from getting this condition. That person should have so much support. Like, it, it's, it's ridiculous. So with diabetes education, it's, we're trying to prevent this from happening. Luckily, I don't have any issues at the moment because we caught it reasonably early, but there are a lot of people that never diagnosed or diagnosed too late and then they develop complications. So uh, early, early intervention is very, very important. When we come back some squeamish research that's changing the game when it comes to treating diabetes. What do you do when your job is taken by a robot? Where does all your e-waste go? How do you split your digital assets when you break up with your partner? This is Think Digital Futures. Each week, an exploration of the moral and mind-boggling questions that face us in the digital age. You can listen on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Digital Futures. Welcome back to Think Health. I'm Jake Morecambe. Today, we're talking diabetes, and we're going to jump straight into our next story. When you're speaking to a friend who, say, doesn't know anything about your research and then you tell them about it, what's the typical reaction? What? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, great surprise. You know, a little bit of crazy. Why would you do that? This is Sheila Donnelly. But when you explain and when you talk about this and you say there actually is nothing else, we may actually be able to find something that works. It It makes a lot of sense. Now, the research that Sheila is doing when you first hear about it might sound a bit strange or even make you feel a little squeamish. I'm sure you're desensitised to it now yeah. having worked in this space, but I am giving, getting a little bit... Ugh. Yes, when I show pictures of talks, there's always quite yeah, a gasp around the audience. And that's because Sheila's research involves microscopic parasitic worms. But that's not all. Some of her research looks at purposefully putting these worms into your body. Yep, infecting yourself with a parasitic worm. Have you done that? No, but I wouldn't be averse to it. And why not? <laughs> As in why I wouldn't be averse to yeah. it? Um, I've, I've read all the literature. I know if you have a low dose of them, the impact to you physiologically would be quite minimal. You might be thinking, why in your right mind would you want to infect yourself with a parasitic worm? And also, what does this have to do with diabetes? Well, to understand that, we have to go back to the research Sheila was doing before this, 
which takes us to the long-reaching farmlands of Ireland. So I'm Irish, you may guess from my accent. So I started my research career in Ireland, where worms are actually a big problem in the agricultural community. Just over a decade ago, a growing number of farmers from Ireland's countryside noticed their cattle and sheep were becoming infected with helminths, which is just another name for these microscopic parasitic worms. The farmers became concerned as they didn't know what the worms were going to do to their livestock. So Sheila and her research team were there to develop a vaccine that would fight back against the worms. And during that work, we started to investigate the immune response. And it was at this time Sheila and her team made an interesting discovery. And this discovery was about the cattle's immune response to the presence of these worms. And we found some very interesting things happening, um, which seemed to indicate that the worms were switching the immune response of the host of the cattle and sheep. The worms were hijacking the immunity of the cattle. And what does that mean? So it means the worms are almost dampening the normal protective immune response. So when you get a cold or a bacterial infection, your body naturally responds by trying to expel that bacteria. So you start sniffing, coughing, you get a chill or a fever. That's your immune response trying to protect you from a nasty bacteria and help you get better. But when you're infected with a parasite, that's a different story. When you have a parasite inside you, in your gut, your normal immune response doesn't work. And that's because the parasite has nestled itself well into your tissue and called your gut its new home. So the parasite lives in your body for quite a long time. Sometimes up to 15 years. And after 15 harmonious years together, gut and parasite have become one. And the way your immune response responds to things like a cold or even an autoimmune disease is completely different. Instead, that worm will act as some sort of sentinel gatekeeper and stop foreign bacteria from harming you. Because your immune response, instead of trying to get rid of the worm, decides to live with it and just repair the tissue damage. Is that a good or a bad thing? That the worm is regulating the immune response? Yeah. If you have autoimmune disease, a good thing? (laughs) Looking at what parasitic worms can do in your gut isn't an idea Sheila and her team pulled out of a hat. For a number of communities in the developing world, they're already living with these worms inside them. Latin America, um, Africa, Asia, they're probably the primary carriers of these parasitic worms. However, in these particular places, these worms are also creating a number of problems. You know, children are carrying hundreds and hundreds of these worms and being reinfected over and over again. So their cognitive learning is impacted, their growth, nutrition. So they're quite seriously impacted by these parasitic infections. But the weird thing is when it comes to autoimmune disease, in these particular countries, rates are low, much lower than in the Western world. Those populations that are infected with helmet or worm parasites seem to have lower incidence of autoimmune disease. So things like type 1 diabetes, multiple sclerosis, things which I'm less sure you know. Less examples of that. Yeah, less. So there's less incidence of that in communities that harbour these worm parasites. This is what Sheila and her current research team are trying to harness. Figuring out how many worms in your body is a good amount to counter the effects of autoimmune diseases like diabetes. 
And not only that, but figure out which molecules and compounds the parasites are forming in your body that's causing your immunity to become heightened. What are in those molecules? A lot of proteins, um, some peptides, which are just smaller proteins. There's a lot of lipids, fats, sugars. So it's a big mix of compounds that the parasite uses to break down tissue, to feed. And Sheila says it's these molecules that could help form new treatments for diabetes that would mock the effect of the worms. We would try and identify and isolate that single compound, if there is a single compound, that we could then inject as a typical treatment that you would have in a clinic or a hospital. So either deliver it you know, by IV injection or by tablet form and so on. So what you're doing is mimicking the effect of the worm without having the live infection. Right. That would be the objective. Now, developing these mock worm treatments doesn't fix the problem. What these treatments would do is stop the immune response that's damaging the tissue. And in the case of type 1 diabetes, stop the natural response destroying the insulin cells. But even if you put an end to that, for those living with type 1 diabetes, that doesn't solve the problem of low insulin levels. It just stops the immune response from self-destructing. And that's why Sheila says these worm tablets or injections would still go alongside other treatments, like an insulin pump. But the next challenge is getting people to stomach the idea of parasitic worms. Mentally and literally. Well, there's only one clinical trial in Australia at the moment looking at using live worms to treat celiac disease. That's happening up in Queensland. And they typically use a hookworm, which is a human worm, and that's the worm that burrows through your skin. So what the researchers do is collect the larvae stage, which is like the young worm, if you like, very, very small, and place that on a Band-Aid or plaster, put that on your skin, and the worms simply burrow through, because that's what they do. That's what they've evolved to do. So, yeah, but I still find people would be not too compliant, I think, taking on live worms. That's that's still a step too far, I think, for some people. Yeah, I think I'd have to ease up to that maybe a little bit too. Sheila Donnelly, Associate Professor in the School of Life Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney. So one area we have not yet covered when it comes to diabetes is gestational diabetes. Now, this only occurs among women during pregnancy, normally starting at the 20 to 24 week period. And for many women, it's somewhat brief in comparison to the lifelong nature of type 1 and 2. But for some, it can indicate complications further down the track. So I caught up with Christine McGrath, who during her pregnancy was diagnosed with gestational diabetes, which was a bit of a twist for Christine, because in her research, she's looking at treatments for type 2 diabetes before it progresses to more cardiovascular complications. For me, luckily, it wasn't that severe, and I just had to watch what I ate. And I found that really interesting when I had gestational diabetes, because Asians have a high risk of developing type 2 diabetes. And one of the reasons for that is we eat lots of rice. You know, Mm. you tell me. And so when the endocrinologists say, well, you have to cut down on rice, I'm like, what? (laughs) Are you kidding me? (laughs) Can you look what I am? I am Asian. I eat rice. That's my staple. But, you know, what really made a difference was when I eat, you know, normal jasmine rice, my glucose levels just skyrocketed. And then when I switched to basmati rice, 
it was like so good. So that's when it really made me think low GI versus high GI really, really makes a difference because when I had gestational diabetes, I eat a big portion of basmati rice and my glucose level was really stable after two hours when I checked it compared to a, a tiny handful of jasmine rice. My glucose level just skyrocketed so that mm. that was really an eye-opener for me. For those who don't know what GI is, what is GI? It stands for glycemic index. And that is a terminology that we use to label a food that releases sugar. How quickly, right? So if you have white bread, for example, that is simple carbohydrate. And when you eat that and you digest that, glucose gets released instantaneously. Compared to a food such as brown rice or basmati rice, for example, um, that's low glycemic index, right? Because researchers have looked at that and they can see when you eat that, it slowly releases the glucose into your bloodstream, which is good because you want your sugar levels in your blood to be stable. For type 1 and type 2 diabetes, it's something that doesn't necessarily have a cure. There are mm -hmm. treatments or ways to manage it. Yep. With gestational diabetes, is that something that only presents itself during the term of pregnancy and then can kind of fade away? That's right. So once I gave birth, it just went away. <laughs> it was like miraculously gone away. But it doesn't really go away. You have that risk because research has shown people with gestational diabetes are at a higher risk so that later in life they would tend to develop type 2 diabetes compared to someone that didn't develop gestational diabetes. Why is that? Yeah, I think it's kind of like imprinting. We don't really know, so that's research is still going on about that, but I'm assuming it's to do with some kind of imprinting where, you know, once you have that, you're predisposing your body to developing it and a big part of it is also to do with genetics. So it's like a, a double whammy, you know, you've got a genetic risk, you've got in your family, you've got gestational diabetes and ethnicity, like being Asian. <laughs> you've got, so I'm, I'm, I've got all three of those factors. <laughs> so I really need to make sure I watch uh, what I eat and what I do, my lifestyle, essentially, yeah. And I guess to go to the research that you're doing now with type 2 diabetes and also what you'd mentioned at the beginning about mm -hmm. those who live with type 2 diabetes are four times more likely to develop, develop. other cardiovascular problems. Disease, yep. One in 12 Australians essentially develop heart disease a day, right? So that makes diabetes as one of the top 10 killers in, in Australia. So... You don't, you don't often hear someone dying of diabetes, right? You hear someone dying from a heart attack, dying from a heart disease, because people with type 2 diabetes, they essentially don't die from diabetes per se. They develop other diseases such as cardiovascular disease, and that is essentially what, what kills them. So in my research, what I'm currently working on that's funded by the Diabetes Australia is I'm working on good cholesterol. So with diabetes, what researchers have noticed is if you have diabetes, you tend to have a lower level of good cholesterol and a higher level of the bad cholesterol. So what some researchers have done is they've looked at, okay, if we then can boost this high cholesterol in models in the laboratory, can that stop or prevent the development of type 2 diabetes? And it does. We use good cholesterol that we isolated from our blood and we noticed that it can slow down and prevent the progression to type 2 diabetes. However, 
it's hard to generate much good cholesterol just by isolating it from our blood. So what researchers have done is they have looked at the molecules that are associated with good cholesterol and we've synthesized it. So synthetically made these molecules that is highly associated with good cholesterol. But at the same time, what are, these molecules are really, really small. And what and kind of things are they? Are they like proteins they're or like, something? So yeah, you've got a proteins, but they're like small little chunks of the protein. So they're called peptides, right? And these peptides are what mimic the, the function of the good cholesterol. However, because they're so small, when you inject them, they get degraded, you know, they get broken down very, very easily. So what I'm currently working on is coating these little peptides in sort of a, it's called micelles. So we encase them in, sort of like a encasing a pill, yeah? Um, we coat them in some kind of molecule such that when we inject them, it protects the drug, so the peptide, and it gets delivered into where we want it to deliver to, in, in my case, deliver, and have its effect, right? One of the reasons why I'm saying liver is because it's been shown that if you have inflammation in the liver as a result of, say, eating a meal of very high fatty food, the liver can become inflamed. And by simply inflaming the liver, research has shown that you can then develop type 2 diabetes. So when you fall down, for example, you graze your knee, you will feel some kind of throbbing, for example. That's what we refer to as acute inflammation because your body instantly reacts to it, okay? Chronic inflammation is what underlies a lot of diseases. Uh, that's cancer, that's um, heart disease, you know, Alzheimer's disease even. So with diabetes, having that high glucose level, essentially, or the high fat food that we eat, this can induce inflammation in a lot of our tissues, mainly in type 2 diabetes in the insulin-sensitive tissues, which is the liver, skeletal muscle, the pancreas. So inflammation actually causes the dysfunction. And I guess for your research, at what stage of diagnosis, or even is it before someone might become diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, Mm -hmm. where do you see your research kind of being implemented? I'm quite wary about going reversing type 2 diabetes, can we reverse type 2 diabetes, right? It's always going to be there uh, and you still need to watch your lifestyle, right? You still need to make sure you're eating properly and you're exercising. Those to me in a, in a, in a way is kind of like a treatment. It, it is hard. <laughs> Having two kids, it's hard to exercise after a long day of work. It's hard to not reach for that yummy cake or whatever. <laughs> for people like me is if you know that you have a risk of developing type 2 diabetes, can you do something to stop it? So let's say you know you don't have a lot of time to do exercise and, and all that. Generate a supplement, for example, even to to go, okay, if I take this once a week on top of what I'm trying to do in terms of lifestyle changes, can I slow down and prevent the disease from going to full-blown type 2 diabetes? Christine McGrath, lecturer in the School of Life Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney. That's it for Think Health this week. If you like the show today, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Health. Also, leave us a review while you're there. It really helps us get discovered. More info on our website at 2ser.com. A massive thank you to Veronica from Diabetes New South Wales who helped get me in touch with both Bridget and Yvonne for this episode. 
Also, if you have any questions, if you are a diabetic yourself or in the stages of pre-diagnosis or just want to find out more about diabetes, Diabetes New South Wales have an amazing customer line you can call. That number is 1300 342 238. That's 1300 342 238. And finally, this show is a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER Radio. I'm Jake Morecambe. I'll catch you next week.